listener production. This is Mother Doctor Nurse, our 12-week special series tackling the health and safety of our children. This episode was recorded live on Facebook and YouTube, and our experts are answering your questions about why your baby might be crying. Feed, Play, Love with Sarah Hunstead and Dr. Deb Levy. Babies cry, sometimes a lot, and often it's for completely normal reasons. They're hungry, tired or wet, but it's not always easy to work out what's going on. And it can be distressing for everyone. Paediatrician Dr. Deb Levy and paediatric nurse Sarah Hunstead are here to answer your questions about why your baby might be crying. So uh, baby crying, I remember um, a midwife said once to me, after my babies were no longer babies, she said, babies are born to feed, not sleep. And in amongst all of that, I was like, ah, right, okay, so they're not designed just to sleep and be peaceful. They've got needs. Those needs want to be met. But it can be quite shocking when you have your first baby, just how much they can cry. I mean, did you ladies have an experience like that? Like what were your babies like? Sarah, I'll start with you. Oh, I remember the midwife actually said to me in hospital, oh, you're a step ahead. You're a pediatric nurse. And I was like, no, but it, they don't belong to me in the hospital. You know, I, I'm <laughs> taking this baby home and it's like, this is a well baby. I don't know what to do with them. And I feed them, make sure they're alive. Um, but no, my first one, she cried a lot. I'm surprised I went back for a second one 18 months later, but she didn't cry. So, you know, it was one of those ones where you're like, geez, you know, I'm glad I had the one who cried first because I think it prepared me in how much I appreciated the second one. Deb, what about your girls? Were they did they cry a lot? I mean, I wonder if that's a trend. It'd be interesting to do a little bit of a poll in the group that are listening to us because my first one was definitely my more unsettled one, um, and then my second baby was a dream, <laughs> but I still called it quits after two. I wonder if it's though something about us as well as mothers 100%. and parents. But by the second one, you're like, oh, I learnt so much the first time round, but that's not to say you don't have a second, third or fourth baby and you're joining us live and you have concerns about crying. So please feel free to pop your questions below. I am going to start with the quest, this question from Tara. She says, in your last episode, you mentioned crying or lack thereof as a red, red flag if your baby is unwell. Can we hear more about this? That is, when is crying something to be concerned about? Deb, I might give that one to you. Sure. I think um, what we spoke about in the last episode were, you know, red flags to look about if your baby is unwell in general. You know, so a change in their crying is a definite alert. And I'm sure Sarah will agree with me. And change in crying in terms of exactly what it sounds like. So for us medicos, we talk about a high-pitched cry being worrying, um, and you will know if you hear it. You know, you may be thinking, oh my goodness, what is that? But you will know the difference. So a different sound to your baby's cry, a different strength to your baby's cry. So an exceptionally weak cry could also be worrying. And then a lack of a cry is more around if your baby is actually just too lethargic, too unwell to even muster that energy 
to try and alert you to a problem. Yep, absolutely. That can be a big red flag in itself. And I know we've got a question about that later as well. So I think we'll expand on that one too. Oh, okay. So uh, let's go to this next question from Kylie. How how much crying is too much for bub, not me, question mark? (laughs) I love this. I love your honesty, Kylie, for a start. And, um, you know, I think just before Deb gets into this, because I think she's the right person to answer, but um, a part of this too is about looking after yourself and, you know, because if you are feeling like you are crying too much, please, please, please reach out and get help. I know that is one of the hardest things you can ever do. And as saying that is, well, with mum friends, if you are noticing that one of your friends is just not coping, please have a conversation with them. So it's not just about the babies, it's about us too. But Teb, I'll handball this to you. We talk about crying in terms of what's normal and then what's more concerning. So It is normal for a baby to cry up to a point. You know, it it is a baby's only form of communication. You know, and, and, you know, obviously I'm talking about little babies before they're able to actually speak. Um, So, you know, they may be crying to say, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I want to cuddle, um, you know, whatever it might be. So this is their way of communicating. We kind of talk about, you know, from, you know, one to three hours as being within the norm. That doesn't mean that if your baby's been crying for two and a half hours, but is inconsolable, you know, is absolutely screeching. So it's not just about how long, it's also about the actual, um, the quality of your baby's cry and how they are as a whole. You dropped up out a little bit there, Deb, but I think we got Sorry. the general gist is that you're saying that if they are crying in a distressed manner for a long period of time, you don't just go, oh, I can let them go for three hours. That's basically what you're saying. Sarah, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? I feel like I cut you off. Oh, no, no, not at all. I think that what Deb has said is, you know, absolutely spot on. And just, I'm going to reiterate again, because I feel like we so can't say this enough is keep tabs on your own crying too. And your emotions, not just tears, not just tears, more than tears. You know, something I often talk about um, is about, you know, the fact that when your baby's crying, it's not just about the baby being held, it's about the mum being held as well, you know, because it is so, so challenging to have an unsettled, upset baby, reach out and find those supports that you need. It triggers everything, doesn't it? Like it's, it's like it's hardwired into you, even if you know there's a reason for their crying. It's hardwired into you to feel I've got to help them stop crying, which actually, good segue, leads to Jessie's question, which she says is weird, but I think is really normal. Is crying ever a good thing? Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. I'm going to take the uh, kind of the first 80 part of this question first, and then Deb can take um, a bit more of the medical part as well. But the first thing that pops into my mind is when a kid whacks their head on something. So, you know, whether it be (coughs) myself, who may or may (laughs) not have had her six-week-old baby in her arms at two o'clock in the morning, uh, moving to a different room to feed and then proceeded to whack her six-week-old baby's head in the doorframe, 
Yes, and she still reminds <laughs> me 15 years later that I did that Like she her. remembers. Well, she wouldn't have a clue, but, you know, of course, you know, it comes up around the dinner table every now and again. Um, crying is awesome. So thinking about a head injury when a child hits their head, what do we want? We want them to immediately cry, to protest so that they've got this reaction because what do we know? We know that when it comes to injury, crying is a good thing. One, it means they're conscious. Two, it means their airway is working, they're breathing. So they're the two main things that we want when a child is injured. So for me as a nurse, when a kid hurts themselves, whether it be a toddler or you're whacking your six-year-old baby's head into a door frame, the louder <laughs> they cry, the happier you are. Not to say that anything, you know, that they don't need to go to hospital or anything like that, but they're conscious and they're breathing and that's what we want. Deb, what do you have to add? As I said in the beginning, um, you know, it is their form of communication and they are telling you something as well. You know, they're alerting you to whatever's bugging them. Mm, exactly. Thank you, Jesse. That was really great to get that question. I do have a statement here, but I think it's worth putting up. Georgia says, I don't really have a question, but as an experienced mum, I just want to say, trust your gut. There was a time when my son was crying, but it was different to their normal and just didn't feel right. I got help and was glad I did. For any new mums out there, trust your gut. Now, I know that both you, Sarah, and Deb feel quite strongly about trusting your instinct. Could you maybe shed some light on, on why that is what George is saying? It's from her wisdom, but it's also from a medical perspective, right? I mean, uh, Sarah, can I start with you? I'd love to tell a story here that illustrates this perfectly. And this is a friend of mine who, when she had her first baby, she used to describe her baby as just this little peanut who would just sleep and feed didn't cry. Um, wow, for a start. I remember <laughs> I remember this pang of jealousy kind of, you know, when she said that coming up in my stomach. But anyway, that's a that's a different story. So she said that her baby didn't normally cry, was very, very settled. But one evening she noticed after her feed, every time she went to put her baby down, she'd scream. And that was completely out of character. So she would scream, she'd pick her up, and she still wouldn't be fully consoled. She was still crying, go to put her down again, screaming again. And she said the cry was weird. It was like it was, she described it as a bit like a cat meowing. She couldn't see that there was anything else wrong with Bub, but she went, this is not right. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to the hospital. Went to the hospital, cut a long story short, after investigations, actually found that Bub had meningitis. So, Holy yes, Molly. I know. So not to say that every time your baby cries that your child has meningitis, please don't think that. But what I'm trying to illustrate here is that immediately mum knew that this was different. She wasn't consolable and she knew that something wasn't right. And she could have just, you know, gone, oh, okay, this is a bit weird, but I'm just going to try and push through it. But she trusted her gut that something was really wrong with her baby and all clinicians and clinicians, if you're out there listening, just a little reminder that we always need to remember that parents know their kids best and that we need to listen when a parent's gut is telling them that something is wrong. So parents insist if you are being rejected by a clinician, keep going and tell them that you are worried. And Deb, your experience with the, um, I, I imagine you get a lot of 
parents coming to see you with their own concerns about their child, that starts with their gut instinct, right? Absolutely. I think that, you know, and Sarah said this again, you know, when we started, you know, it was like, oh, you know, you're a pediatric nurse. This is going to be easy for you. But um, I had the same experience as a pediatrician. You know, it (laughs) is the toughest thing having a child. And I'm saying a child because I think at different ages, it poses different challenges. Um, You know, but with a little baby, you're learning each other. You know, you're learning how your baby is trying to express themselves to you. They're learning about the whole world. And it is very, very challenging. And what I usually recommend is trying to find a good support team, ears that'll listen, you know, people that will help you during this challenging time and not just brush you off, um, you know, or disregard your concerns. Because as a mum, you are your child's primary advocate. And if you are worried, you should pursue that. And that includes if one person does brush you off and say, no, 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 that's all normal. You know, let's just move on. Because if you're worried, you know, get it seen to. Exactly. Um, Thank you for that statement, Georgia. It was actually really, I think, enlightening for everyone. Uh, Kirsty says, hey, ladies, is it normal for babies to cry in their sleep? Are they too young to have nightmares? That's an interesting question. Who wants to take that? Look, I I think before, uh, sorry, I just jumped straight in. Um, I think, (laughs) good, Sarah says, um, when do babies start dreaming and having nightmares? You're right. It's it's not um, for little babies, you know, within the first few months of life. We don't believe that they are yet. But um, it doesn't mean that they're not perhaps uncomfortable and pain and their sleep pattern, perhaps they're coming out of a a deep sleep into a more shallow sleep, and that's unsettling them a bit. So I think that it all, you know, and I hate using this phrase, but it kind of all depends. And it all depends on how extreme the crying is and how prolonged the crying is. But if it's it's one little squawk and then the baby's settling straight back down to sleep, I really wouldn't be that bothered by it. But if it's a persistent recurring event, then I'd be going, well, are they in pain? You know, have they been bitten by something? You know, is there something else that's uncomfortable? I would look deeper into it. And I guess that's part of, you know, the the five things that I think you have to exclude when you're talking about your baby, you know, in terms of why they are crying. But I'm sure we'll go into that in a little bit more depth. Sorry, I was going to say, I want to know what babies dream about. Like, do they just dream about bottles of boobs and dummies and stuff? Like. That's a very philosophical question. Haven't you watched Boss Baby? I'll, I'll just send you off. You can watch that later. Oh, that's um, one of my favourites. <laughs> I, I would say um, I'd love to follow on from what you just said there, actually, Deb, and talk about those five things that you would go through when your baby's crying. Could you talk us through that now? Sure. You know, I, I try and keep things as simple as possible, bearing in mind, of course, we really do have to go a little bit deeper, but you know, there's five things that I talk about are one, are they hungry? You know, so it's a simple, have they not fed enough, you know, or on the corollary, have they overfed? So, you know, is it around their hunger? Two, are they tired? So are they actually just overtired and, or overstimulated and then they can't get to sleep and they're just crying and crying. So hungry, tired, dirty. And I don't mean have you bathed them, but I mean more their diaper. So, you know, had they got a wee or a poo sitting in their diaper, making them uncomfortable. Four, are they in pain? And in pain can be from a variety of things. So 
I'll go into that in a second. Or five, are they sick? Are they unwell? And is this their way of talking to you? So I guess just to, you know, summarize those five again, are they hungry? Are they dirty? Are they in pain, sick, or tired? And what were you going to say about the pain, Deb? So the pain, again, trying to keep things in a way to remember, it's either stuff come from the outside in or stuff from the inside out. And stuff on the outside, I'll probably leave to Sarah because that's talking about things like hair tourniquets and insect bites and bits of skin being stuck in zippers and horrible things like that. Um, you know, pain from the inside out, I guess, you know, the two main causes and certainly not exhaustive but um, those are things like reflux you know could your child have gastroesophageal reflux or could they have colic or this could they be in this purple period um, you know so those would be the two main things that I would look into in terms of pain and so what do you mean by purple period I love this term I don't love the period because it's quite traumatic for families but it's a great term because it actually explains exactly what it is Often people will refer to their babies as colicky or perhaps health practitioners will say, you know, your baby has colic, which I think is a little bit confusing because it's not a pathological, physiological, medical diagnosis. And, you know, and the word colic to me sounds like it could be, but um, there's another term that came out of the US um, coined by a pediatrician there, I take no claim for it, um, and it's the purple period. And I'll run through what the, the, it all stands for. It's a mnemonic. And for those of you who know me, know I love a good mnemonic. Um, so P stands for the peak period of crying. So that's at around about two months. So typically that's when things kick off and then they peak and then they start to get better again. So P is for the, the peak. U is for unexplained. You know, so that's when you've gone through those five things and, you know, perhaps your healthcare providers had, um, you know, had a review of your child. So it's unexplained. We don't really know why they're crying. R is for they're resistant to soothing. You know, we can also talk about that if you want, some tips in order to how to try and soothe your baby. But really, this is a baby who no matter what you do, just continues to cry. That very, very frustrating high-risk period. P is for pain-like face. So really looks like they're in pain. They're grimacing, scrunching up their eyes. Really, really a painful face. L is for long-lasting. E, so the last E of purple, is that it usually occurs in the evening time. You know, you, again, you often have people call, you know, talking about the bewitching pe- witching hours. Hour. Witching hours, sorry. Mm-hmm. Witching hour, exactly. And then the period at the end is a full stop which is the best part of the whole mnemonic because it means it ends. It is a defined period of time. It usually ends when they're around about five months of age, okay? um, you know, which I think is a very, um, it's a very good space to sit in as a parent if you, if you know that this too shall pass. Yeah. Oh, that is so, so important. Um, I'm just going to move on to another question unless, Sarah, there is something you would like to add. To oh, no, I think that was a perfect explanation of the purple period. Purple period. That's something we'll probably need to put in the notes. Lisa says, hi, my little one cries after breastfeeding when I've eaten something with chili in it. Could what I'm eating affect him whilst breastfeeding? Deb, this is all that one. Oh, that's Deb. This is a Deb question for sure. I tell you what, I, I know when I've eaten chili as well the next day, but surely the baby can too. 
<laughs> no, exactly. It didn't go down well, man, the pun. Um, you know, it's a little, I'm pausing because it's actually a little bit controversial. So um, some practitioners will strongly believe that whatever the mother eats will be passed during the breast milk. Other practitioners less so. I'm more, you know, in the initial, I actually think it all passes through. And I think that whatever impacts mom can impact Bob. So, um, yes, I do believe that whatever you're, you're eating can um, impact your baby. And there's especially one food that I'm happy to talk about that I, I do believe can be implicated in things like reflux. And that is dairy and its little partner soy. So um, absolutely, looking at your diet as a breastfeeding mom is important. But please, sorry, I'm, I'm just jumping in here before you move on. Um, please be very, very careful about just taking foods out of your diet. I really never advocate for that um, because I never want a mum to become depleted herself. So always do it under the care of a healthcare yeah. provider or dietitian. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a question here from Amber. First question from Amber is, my youngest would often cry so hard he would almost stop breathing lips turning blue, et cetera. And she follows that up with, what's your best advice to help them catch their breath back? So how normal yeah. is it for a baby to cry that hard that, um, and I, I'm, I'm assuming that this was a regular occurrence, Amber, but that your baby was okay. So that can be distressing for a parent, right? It might be, is it possible for it to be completely normal, but they cry so hard they almost stop breathing? It definitely is. So you can actually, children can have breath-holding episodes, which can be terrifying, um, where literally they pass out because they have been holding their breath, um, often due to when they have been crying or in a, in a, an emotional disturbance, for want of a better word. And it's really interesting. I remember once um, a woman came running into, well, actually, she didn't come running into, she came walking into ED with her child who had a massive laceration across his head. And she's like, yes, uh, we're here again. And I'm like, oh, gosh, okay, here we go. And then when I went to go and put something over the top after I'd had a look at this child's cut, he was a little toddler. He then started to cry and mum said, stop, don't touch him. He's a breath holder. And I went, oh, and before my eyes, this kid stopped breathing, turned navy blue and collapsed. And with every fibre of my being, I wanted to scoop him up and run him into the recess room and put oxygen on him. But mum was calm. She's gone, no, just don't touch him. Leave him alone. He'll start breathing again soon. So it's wow. one of those things that absolutely can happen. But Deb, do you want to go into the more clinical aspects of that? Look, I agree. There are a group of kids and usually they're older. So it's not normally babies who are birth hold and often there's iron deficiency and other things going on there. So there's that group. I think that it's very, very important though to note that if your baby ever changes color and in terms of blue color, sorry, babies will usually get a little bit red in the face and purpley you know, in their face, but I'm talking about their lips, their mouth. If they ever change color, while they're crying, they should be medically reviewed. Because what I worry about, you know, being the, the worry medic that I am, um, I want to make sure there's nothing cardiac going on. So I want to make sure they're not being compromised in other ways. So very, especially these are the very young babies, if they're having any kind of color change, they should be medically reviewed. Um, so 
I'm not sure, Amber, how old your little one is or whether they were assessed, but I can assure you, Sarah, you know, that that experienced mum that you you speak about would have gone through a whole batch of tests and reviews before they were given that label of breast holding. Yep, that's exactly yeah. right. And, you know, and this is something, once again, this child was three years old. He was a toddler, not a little baby. So that's something that's, yeah, really important to remember too. Yeah. So uh, this one actually feeds into something that you, I think, were mentioning before, Deb, and I'm going to direct this question to Sarah. I've read that if your baby is crying nonstop to check their hands and feet for cotton or hair wrapped around their toes or fingers, is this a thing? And if so, what could happen? Sarah? It definitely is a thing. So it's uh, called a hair tourniquet. And particularly, I don't know about you, but uh, certainly all my hair fell out when I uh, postpartum after I'd had my kids. And what can happen is, is mum's hair or a carer's hair can, you know, go into, you know, the cot or, you know, the onesie or even thinking about in onesies little bits of cotton and little bits of cotton in socks as well. If they uh, actually get around a little toe or a finger or even the tip of a penis, um, what it can do is it can really wrap around quite tightly and it can constrict the blood flow. So often one of the first things that um, a carer might notice is that a child becomes really unsettled. So if ever your child's okay and then they become really unsettled, crying, it may seem like they're in pain, check their fingers and toes. It's something that's going to take you 10 seconds to do, but check. So often when they're in the little onesies in the middle of the night, it's not something we think of, uh, but have a look. And what you might see, you may not be able to see the actual hair or cotton that's wrapped around, but you may notice that the tip of that little finger or toe might be quite red or purple. Now, what we do recommend is that you do go to um, hospital to get that removed. Um, there's lots of stuff in the interwebs out there that say, you know, you can just get some Nair at home and pop it on and all the rest of it. But in my experience of getting these things off, they can be really, really stuck in there. And you need, you know, big magnifying things and special tools to be able to really make sure that that hair is out. So, Please, if you suspect that your child does have a hair tourniquet, um, it's off to the hospital and it's actually an urgent thing because it doesn't take that long for damage to be done when the blood supply is being compromised to a little finger or toe. Deb, do you want to add anything to that? No, Sarah, I think you covered okay. it. Absolutely. <laughs> it's got the Dr. Deb seal of approval. Um, <laughs> this next question comes from Quinn. Hi, ladies. I've read heaps about different types of cries in babies. I'm almost due and worried I'm not going to be able to tell the difference. Is it really obvious? Who'd like to take that one? Oh, um, I don't mind. I just anecdotally, um, you know, to be honest, I think you you really do learn to know. You end up tuning into these cries and it's such a naff response when I say that. Oh, yes, you know. But you actually do. You actually do get in tune to those cries. And there's a lot of literature out there that talks about, um, you know, three or four different, you know, main types of cries and so on. I'm certainly not an expert in that. Deb probably knows a lot more than I do about that. But you do. It's it's sometimes, and I, I even notice now 
that with my kids, if um, and, and and their teens, that if you know a certain cry comes from one of them, I'm like, oh, you're okay. But even they even still cry differently if they've actually really truly hurt themselves and they're not just trying to get off a day of school. So I think you do become attuned to that quite young. Would you agree with that, Deb? Are there are there ways Absolutely. of telling what cries mean? You know, there's there is a lot out there, and um, you know, there's the meh and the nah and like all these other funny sounds that are, that are supposed to mean certain things. But I do think it's just a bit of time and getting to know your baby. You know, it's. you definitely can pick it up. And I think, you know, Sarah and I, we've heard a lot of babies and a lot of different babies cry, and I'm sure you can figure it out too, right, Sarah? And that's just from from time and just from the experience of listening to the cries and working it out. So um, congratulations. It's an exciting time ahead. I also just want to say don't be totally lulled into that false sense of security for the first few weeks when they actually don't do a lot of crying. There's usually crying and they usually wake up at around about that two-week mark and go, oh, I can actually say something with my little cry in my voice here. But um, enjoy the journey. Yes, and give yourself time because I don't I don't know anyone who had their baby and, and straight away understood what cry meant what. It is just, I, I just think we forget. We think we're going to give birth and immediately know what to do as mothers. But it's a process, like you say. Oh. Deb, of getting to know each other, getting to know your baby, like, and they're nonverbal, so give yourself time. <laughs> I think, yeah, so important to do that. And, you know, it's it's okay not to know what to do as well. It really is. It's You're not expected yes. to be that baby expert the second you, you know, this child comes into the world. And the other thing I think we need to do as well is, you know, as they do start to get a bit older, um, we do know when it's that, you know, that 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 it's okay to step away for a bit as well for your own sake. I can remember making sure that my six-month-old was safe, putting her in her cot where she couldn't be hurt, she was fed, she was dry, all of those things, but she was screaming and I needed to step away for me, making sure she was safe, shut that door and left, not for very long, like I'm not talking like, you know, three or four days here. It was only a matter of minutes, but I needed to <laughs> 24 do 24 hours. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I needed to do that for me, for my head, um, and that's okay as well. Mm. We have a question here from Priya. She says, my baby cries a lot, especially after a feed. How do I know if he has reflux? And what is silent reflux? I'm going to put that one to Deb. Okay. How long do we have here to answer this question? <laughs> <laughs> Give us your, um, an hour of consultation to work this out. <laughs> tip um, of the iceberg answer. The tip of the iceberg answer is, I'll address the last one first um, in terms of what is silent reflux. So silent reflux, actually, no, let me take a step back and go, well, what are we talking about here? What is reflux? Here we're referring to gastroesophageal reflux, which essentially is movement of the milk sitting in the stomach back up the food pipe, which is called the esophagus. The vast majority of babies are born with a degree of this. In some of them, it upsets them and it hurts them and can cause problems. So the fact that a baby's crying after a feed is possibly one of the clues that it could be reflux, but there are a whole lot of things that we look at. Vomiting is one of them but it's not always present. 
if it's not present, but they've got the whole batch of other symptoms and we think it's reflux, that's when we then call it silent reflux. So not silent like your baby's not crying, but silent because they're not vomiting. So, you know, the other things that we look at is, are they grimacing again, that painful face while they're feeding? Are they pulling on and off? Do they not want to feed? Are they, is their whole body stiffening, which is a sign they're in pain? Um, you know, is it when they're lying down? Do they not like being in the car seat? I mean, I'm giving a whole list of things here just to, you know, really illustrate the importance of a thorough history when assessing your child. Because usually when they're examined, they actually examine perfectly healthy. Sometimes if their reflux is quite significant and severe, they won't be gaining weight as well. But that's quite a small minority of children. The majority of children with reflux sit somewhere in the middle where they're uncomfortable, they're experiencing some pain, but they're otherwise growing and thriving. And look, we have time for probably just one more question. Um, and this comes from Ola. She says, to be honest, I feel like my baby cries a lot more than the other babies in my mother's group. He's been seen by my GP who said everything is normal. Does this mean he's just a cranky baby? And that was from Ola. <laughs> Do you know what? I reckon oh, I came way. into motherhood feeling with very, very low expectations because I reckon both of my babies cried all the time and I just thought it was normal. Like I just thought that was motherhood and that's what it was to have a baby so I didn't think my babies were cranky Ola and they cried all the time so maybe I just set the bar really low <laughs> and the other thing too is is are the other babies really not crying all the time are they really not or is it one of those ones where it's like no I've got a perfect baby and maybe it's only for that period maybe they walk out the door of mother's group and start bawling mm -hmm. exactly I don't know what would you say, Deb? Look, I think that there is a degree of temperament that comes to play in these things. And I'm not going to call your baby cranky, but it's possible that they just like to express themselves a little more. Um, but that being said... <laughs> so diplomatic, Deb. Exactly right. That being said, you're drawing back to the whole trust your guts, listen to your instinct. You know, even if your GP you know, has seen your baby and thinks everything is normal. If you still inside aren't happy with that, have them reviewed again. Yeah. Well, ladies, I might wrap it up there because we've had a, a good chat about crying. So thank you again for answering all these questions. See, thanks for your questions, everyone. Thank you. Goodbye. Dr. Deb Levy and Sarah Hunstead will be back next week talking about male genitals. As mums, we might not be as familiar with them, so you could have all kinds of questions, questions that are important to helping our boys stay healthy and happy. Like, what do you do with a heat rash down there? Can boys get UTIs? And if yes, what should we do? You can email us your questions at feedplaylove at sca.com.au and we'll get to them in the next episode of Mother, Doctor, Nurse. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the listener app. And don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.